and welcome to Concert Pipeline. That's Jen Schippel. And that is Steve Jones. And Jens, we've been doing a lot of traveling. Uh, the, we mean, have been doing a lot of traveling. Um, we have, and we got we got some stories to share about uh, our recent adventures. We do. Uh, and before we get into the stories, uh, you know, um, I want to really call out who we have on the program because I'm 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 really excited about it. This is an interview that. Um, you know, it's it's one of the reasons I do the podcast is interviews like this, right? I, I didn't know this band beforehand, and I uh, was put in touch with uh, with them through a publicist that I've worked with, uh, you know, on a number of occasions, uh, and um, and so uh, we're talking about the immediate family. And so when I was researching the band, um, which includes uh, uh, Danny Korchmar on, on guitar and vocals, um, and uh, Wadi Wachel on uh, guitar and vocals, um, Leland Sklar on bass, Russ uh, Kunkel on drums, and Steve Pastel on guitar and vocals as well. Um, I mean, each of these uh, musicians has such storied careers uh, in, in their own right, and uh, they've worked together a lot over, you know, 50 years. Uh, time with Steve being the newest uh, addition to the group, uh, but they've also worked with so many uh, huge artists and bands. I mean, they like they've worked with everybody. I mean, I can start listing off names, but we'll talk about uh, a lot of them in the interview. So I don't want to give too much away, other than you know, I I knew I had my work cut out for me, but I was really excited to hear stories of their you know from their careers. Yeah, it sounds like a fantastic interview, um, and I remember uh, you also telling me how you know uh, rich in history, <laughs> uh, uh, you know this, 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 uh, these the members of the band have. Yes, and for, for you, Jens, I did ask uh, Russ Kunkel about Bob Dylan. Uh, because, yes, you did. Good, because I know you're a big fan. So, <laughs> yeah, I, I admit I am. Yes, so uh, so we got that to look forward to, but um, I should uh, I should say also that they have a new EP out on October sixteenth called Slippin' and Slidin', uh, that where there's a couple songs from uh, from their careers as as well that the songs that they worked on with the um, the musicians who uh, who made the songs and uh, and uh, the EP is really great, so you have that to look forward to. Nice. Yes. Good, 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 good. Man, they have. I mean. There was something about uh, about um, you know a number of albums uh, uh, oh. made or produced or something. Leland, yeah, Leland Scar. Uh, he worked on I mean over twenty six hundred albums in his career. Yeah. Uh, and so I yeah I did ask him about that as as well and you know and you know not to spoil the interview but he's you know he pretty much said that there was you know I mean. Uh, making albums was a lot quicker back in the day, I guess, you know, they, so, uh, but, so the 2600 was like an early thing in his career. I, I don't know when he hit the 26. I think it's including, you know, stuff he still continued to work on that, that number, right, but, right, but, right. but still a yeah, number but, of those were back in the day and he's continued and, and it just shows you that these, you know, musicians, I mean, they don't slow down, you know? So yeah, there's, I'll just say that there's a lot to look forward to in this interview and that it's was really enjoyable. And, uh, if you are a fan of music and, uh, and hopefully if you're listening to this, you are, then, uh, um, then you'll enjoy the, uh, this podcast. That's great. And you know what? Yeah, kudos to them too, for getting it all together because I, 
I think you also told me it was a you know a Zoom interview. Uh, everyone in the interview was in a different location. Yeah, yeah. I interviewed all five members at the same time, and uh, and they. Uh, yeah, so I had to navigate that a little bit, which was new. You know, I mean, usually I interview one, yep. one person in Zoom at the same time, and but uh, right, right. Uh, but this this was uh, <laughs> this is cool, and it worked out really well. So, uh, so that's yeah, kind of, yeah. Well, I'm glad nobody had um, you know any uh, issues with their Wi-Fi connection. <laughs> <laughs> Just Leland a little Cost bit. Call. Come on, Leland. Leland. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we always got to give somebody a hard time, right? Yeah. Um, so, so on next week's yes. podcast, we'll talk talk about my my trip that I took but right now I want to dig into yours because you're closing yours out and yours I mean mine was quick like two days yours is uh you know a good solid two weeks and uh so tell us a little bit about your trip yeah yeah I mean um you and I usually you know talk more often but uh I've been sort of out and gone and I took some time off of uh off of work um I scheduled you know that time off uh, a few months ago um not really knowing what September was going to be like, right? So, uh, the thing, you know, so work goes on, the fires in California start, you know, the smoke, the, you know, buying air, humid, uh, air purifiers and, you know, trying to get the fans working and then, you know, your lungs hurting and, and, um, I just, I, you know, I got, we got to a point where I felt like I just was going to out of my skin or whatever that expression was uh-huh. um, yeah, which I... was about the time that the vacation you know happened uh, we were my wife and I were so you know glad just to get out of California and um, it took a long time dude before the smoke disappeared so we uh, you know hit the from the area hit the five all the way down to the Bakersfield area and then put over to Las Vegas, and our goal was Southern Utah. Um, so you did. You did we, go through uh, Vegas. We're going to do like canyons and stuff. And so you did go through Vegas. We did go through Vegas. Okay. Yeah, we, we went through Vegas, and uh, that was the city where maybe I think slightly before Vegas, we started seeing blue sky. Mm, okay. Um, so it was still kind of in kind of California, you know, Nevada border is when the blue sky finally happened. And we were just so excited. Like we didn't even care anymore what the vacation was. We just wanted to see blue sky and not inhale smoke anymore. And, um, you know, so that was a big win for us. So, you know, we felt like, okay, we're on vacation right now and everything else is just gravy. Um, yeah. So, uh, ever since college, you know, I've had, I've had, I've met people that have, you know, traveled to different areas of the country and, you know, shown photographs and shared their stories and stuff. And I was just always struck about, um, you know, how beautiful Southern Utah is and, uh, and, um, what do I want to say about that? I put it on my bucket list, yeah. you know, and, that, that, and college was a long time ago for me. And I'm really surprised that I never made the effort to go before i guess i kind of forgot about it I yeah know. and you get that, that i mean happened. well usually when you travel also you do, you don't just go to you know your backyard which in the, i mean utah would be far for me in terms of traveling but you you go to croatia you go to germany <laughs> ta- taiwan or you, you you're a world you're a world traveler so you know going somewhere yeah. in your backyard and driving for a trip is uh, is a little foreign to you <laughs> yeah I, I don't do it and in fact i was kind of 
surprised that this was the longest road trip I've that ever taken. Yeah. In this country, I'm like, well, damn, I can't believe it. I've never driven All my across life, the country. I haven't gone either. on a major yeah. road trip. I've never done that either. You know, I mean, I drove done that either. Yeah. Yeah, the farthest I've gone is, you know, I drove to Anaheim and back in one day uh, for a concert <laughs> and then uh, made, it, made it back in time for uh, an 8 a.m. class uh, the next morning <laughs> that I went to. Oh, right, 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 yeah. right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, here you go. So, um, uh, so, yeah, it was on my bucket list. And um, I've got to say, I, I mean, this vacation would not have happened had COVID not happened. Yeah. You know, I mean, the, the whole reason this road happened now is because, like, everybody hates America, and the few countries you can go to, you don't necessarily, you know, want to go to. <laughs> no. no. Um, so, let's see. Uh, so, it was just, yeah, it's just, you know, circumstance, and um, and uh, we just had a fantastic time, dude. I mean, the, the parks that we saw there were just gorgeous one after the other i you know every 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 day seemed better than the day before that i mean the vacation just kept on getting better and better and better and better until yesterday's kind of grand finale um where we went on this epic hike um it is just beautiful waterfall um that had all these just amazing colors uh on it as the wall as the, as the water was kind of you know falling over it um just beautiful browns and greens and oh just breathtaking anyway so um we uh we did all the 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 big parks so we did zion first um hit zion uh we stayed in a we stayed in a uh uh, like a canvas a tent a tent yeah type thing i want to say yurt but it's not round it's more you know rectangle-ish sure so, you know, one of those canvas places. And it was so cool. They did a really good job uh, decorating it. And um, it had a view of one of the canyons in the area. Um, so, I mean, you could just sit out and, and, and watch the canyon change color as the sun, you know, slowly started setting. Yeah. And it just kept on changing and different, you know, layers of beauty. And it was just fantastic. Um, so at the very beginning of our, our trip, we had a few days in Zion. It was crazy hot. I mean, it was back to back 105 days. It's ridiculous. Um, yeah. yeah. Ridiculous. So we, we did the, we did this, this, um, this river rock, uh, this, uh, this, this river walk called the narrows okay um so basically you are walking the the hike is walking in the river um for a large percentage of the time every now and then there's a little trail off to the left or right or something but it's it's just you're walking you're walking up a river and you can't swim you're not cold you couldn't swim through the river right you wouldn't want to swim yeah unless you have no nerve endings you wouldn't want to swim and to one point it got uh, it got up to my wife's uh, waist, I would think. Okay, so and I'm glad I'm a tall guy. Yeah, it was you know, down around I your was feet kind of then, right? Freaking <laughs> out that my nads would freeze off. Did Did you consider and, Did you consider putting her on your shoulders? And, uh, and <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was like, I don't want I don't want to get cold. Like I don't want I don't want I don't want any damage caused to the body. Uh-huh. You know, um, I'm fine going back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, anyway. Um, 
it was it was it was it was the perfect walk for the first day because uh, it was so crazy hot. But when you're down there in the narrows and you're in the water and you're slowly you know walking up the river rocks and stuff, it's so cool and uh, just a beautiful you know oasis away from the crazy heat. Um, and yeah, so the river is in a deep canyon. So you're walking in this really narrow canyon um, in the water and the colors and the shadows. Um, the vegetation, I mean, it's just like a photographer's dream. Um, I'm not a big, you know, photographer. No, I think no. you take much big, better pictures uh, than I do. So I was, I was kind of thinking of you like, man, if Steve was down here, he'd probably take some kick, kick-ass photos. Yeah, I like taking some pictures. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so anyway, so there's, you know, an example of, uh, of, uh, of Zion. Uh, we, we were at Bryce. Bryce is fantastic, totally different. Um uh, you know what a lot of this stuff looked like, Steve? What did it look like, Jens? You know when, when you're like at the beach with your kids, right? And yeah. they're playing in the sand, and they take wet sand in their hands, and they kind of like make it drip down. Sort of, do your kids do that? Like they build little castle walls that way? My, my kids don't really do that, actually. They should, but... <laughs> they don't? Oh. No. no. <laughs> anyway, I remember doing this as a kid. You know, you, you're, you're, you're sitting at the beach, you take wet sand, and you just let it drip out of your hand mm-hmm. um, as if you had, like, a syringe or something. Okay. And the drips of sand build them on top of each other, like a stalagmite, right? That's what it is. So yeah. you're, you're basically sort of building a stalagmite. That's what Bryce Canyon was like. Like, tons of of stalagmites, you know, but you're not in a cave. So it's, it was so mind-bending to try to figure out how the hell this stuff, how nature created this stuff. It was just bizarre. I mean, there were so many instances um, out of all the different landscapes that we saw, Steve, that I felt like I felt like Hollywood had come out here and they had taken this land to, do, to, to, to build different movie sets out of yeah and then they just left it there like i felt like i was in a star wars scene at least seven or eight times wow i'm like this could be this could be the this could be you know star wars has different planets dedicated to different terrains like there's a snow planet and a water planet and you know forest moon and all this stuff um like there's the canyon planet like this is the this is the canyon planet where where uh, uh like they're chasing Darth Vader as a kid yeah, did his yeah. pod racing mm-hmm. yeah. like that's what it was like oh Anakin uh, yeah. yeah Anakin right and then they had filmed um Galaxy Quest there um I mean it was just uh, I, I mean dude I don't even know how to explain this I'm just I'm just out of words I, I literally felt like this wasn't a road trip. Like I had been teleported to like, let's just say five or six completely different planets. Yeah. I I just, I, I, (laughs) the terrain was so varied. It just, my mind just couldn't grasp the fact that this is earth. And uh, this could be, this could be real. Yeah. Like it, it was so earth, earth shattering, I guess. Um, I don't know. Maybe I don't get out enough. But. That's what it seems. I mean, well, I mean, you do. Nuts. 
You do, uh, but but not not locally, right? Uh, I guess I don't go to deserts often. No, that's the thing. You don't you don't experience too many deserts uh, in your travels. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. yeah. Uh, anyway, so um, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself. So yeah, so we did the Bryce thing, you know, and literally it's a canyon that looks like galag bites, and then um, and then uh, uh, we did arches okay after that and i've got to tell you do tell whoever decided to call this national park arches uh-huh. missed out on a really big opportunity okay what, what were they missing out on well to me there were three predominant things okay in this park one arches yes got it two windows uh-huh. which are kind of like arches but it's more like a tunnel through rock less of an arch and three lots and lots of like stone erections okay yes like big fat penises like i i i I feel like you know uh i was gonna say galileo who am i talking about (laughs) um Yeah, that famous painter yeah michael michelangelo yes michelangelo yeah i felt like he came uh-huh. to southern Utah and started just practicing, you know, making dicks for That's David. A, like, what would David's dick look like? I don't <laughs> know, just make it out of stone. <laughs> I'd imagine... Or, I'd imagine the ones or, he was practicing on were a little bigger than uh, than the ones uh, that... Uh, right. <laughs> or God in his attempt to, you know, figure out what one of his planets looks like, you know, mm-hmm. creates all these different landscapes or she's trying to figure out what a human being should look like he's like all right i'm just gonna make a bunch of dicks how are these things gonna reproduce (laughs) (laughs) so it was like his little studio (laughs) dude it was uh, uh, my point steve is that the stone dicks Mm. far outweighed the arches and the the windows can the greek gods Uh, like visit these dicks and you know and like the goddesses right actually utilize them uh, in any capacity or I don't know. I mean, maybe it was the center of divine fertility. Okay. Yeah. You know, it was Aphrodite's paradise or something. <laughs> Pandora's box. I don't know. Uh, uh, Pandora's no. box. Um, uh, anyway, so it, I don't know why it's called arches. It should yeah. be called uh, National Stone Thalus Park. <laughs> I think- <laughs> Arches maybe uh, a little more simpler, and uh, <laughs> kind of get there. Yeah, probably it would offend less people who are yeah. sensitive to these kinds of things. Uh, anyway, so yeah, so um, yeah. Uh, so that's where the, the Colorado River was in that area. Uh, we stayed by the river for a while. It was so tranquil, tranquil, uh, tranquil, so beautiful. Um, we did have a thunderstorm uh, for a short period of uh, time. It was a few hours. It was just one of those kind of those flash flood things. It was amazing. You could just see the sheets of rain coming down, but in a very small area in the sky. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and uh, yeah, and- I don't know. I mean, I could go on for hours. Yeah. I could, I, I'm just do it. You, I'm just saying you've got to do it. Okay. You've got to. You've gotta, you've gotta go there, and I know, I know where you went recently, so I'm not gonna yes. get, you know, spoil it at all. So you got like a big taste of where I, where I went. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, 
No, that's freaking yeah. and, incredible. And so I want to ask you before we get to the interview. Um, so as far as the, the road trip piece, um, I mean, like, uh, how do you pass the time? And uh, I mean, cause that, that was a long drive that you, you had there, right? Like is, yeah. Yeah. And that's just, this is a really interesting that you ask this question because I'm going to tell you right now, Steve, we um, had downloaded a bunch of podcasts, like, 50 podcasts and we figured um well 50 episodes of one podcast and uh we were looking forward to, to listening to it and we knew we'd you know have a lot of time to do that so we got through a lot of the episodes but i'm not going to tell you about what it is because it's a it's some news it's some it's a story that i'll tell okay <laughs> uh on a future podcast uh-huh uh, uh, maybe I'll hint more about it next on the next pod, but I can't tell you right now what that what that was. Okay, so hints about pot, a podcast that Jens listened to that involves a story that he's going to tell on the podcast in the future. Yes, we are. This is going to be playing out over a couple of episodes, apparently. So you've got to stay tuned. <laughs> yes, yes, it'll there'll definitely be a repetitive theme. Um, listeners will probably start getting sick of these stories. Uh, <laughs> but uh, anyway. Um, I also can officially say that I finally listened to a podcast. How about that? After yeah. having been, been on one for almost 200, 200 episodes. <laughs> 200 episodes. <laughs> it's, it's a big step, Jens. All right. It's a big step. Uh, okay. Yeah. All right. Well, let's bring in our guests, uh, uh, plural, right? And this is uh, the immediate family. Hello, everybody. You got the whole gang. Hello. Seems like it. There we go. Hey, fellers. Hey, hey girls. Hey, girls. <laughs> How are you guys doing? Excellent. Oh, fine. How are you, man? Good. I'll just ask a cumulative question, you know, to the whole band and expect, a, you know, one person to answer on behalf of everybody, right? That's the best way to do it. So, <laughs> no. Uh, well, why don't we start with uh, Leland? Why don't, you, why don't you answer for the group and, uh, and tell me how you guys are doing right now? Um, we're doing fabulous under the circumstances. We're as good as we can be. We'd love to see things get better where we could hit the road again, but for right now, we're doing everything we can and enjoying our lives. And I would say so, you, you especially. I mean, I've seen a lot of your uh, YouTube videos, and uh, I'll, I'll start there, I think, because, uh, <laughs> oh, man. Uh, and it's <laughs> Uh, the, the one you put up today, Leland, I, I thought this was great because you did a, you put a video of Lee uh, up and, uh, and there was a comment on it. Russ and Lee, uh, not only do they sound great together, uh, together they also have the average amount of hair for two men. <laughs> hey, Russell, Russell, I put up uh, your DW performance where you did Running on Empty. I talked, uh-huh. about, I put, I talked about you and then posted that today on my page. Oh, nice. Thanks, man. I figured yeah. out of this whole band, there was one guy worth showing on there that really... Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's the one, right? <laughs> oh, thank you. So true. Well, well, thank you guys for joining. So, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll go back. I, I think, I guess it makes sense to start early on. And I want to kind of know for you guys, really, I mean, you guys have been doing this obviously much longer than I've been alive. So, you know, we'll, we'll start there. But I want to know what was it for you that made music click with you early on? Was it, you know, in your childhoods that you, you know, you kind of latched onto something? Did your parents play music um, in, in the household? Who are you directing the question to? 
Okay, we'll start with you, Cooch. All right. Well, you know, um, music was the only thing I could relate to at all in my, in my, you know, growing up. I grew up, basically, I was born in New York City, but grew up in suburbia. I um, couldn't relate to anything around me. I was not a happy camper until I discovered, started listening to music. You know, uh, the first uh, stuff that really hit me was the first generation of rock and roll. You know, Little Richard, Fats Domino, Elvis Presley, that stuff really got to me. And after that, uh, I started getting interested in folk blues. And I started getting interested in Chicago blues, and jazz. And then um, the second generation of rock and roll, which started, I guess, with the Beatles or just before the Beatles, also was a huge influence, like it was on all of us. So that was the thing that I could mainly relate to in my life. I, you know, most, most of my life was, you know, <laughs> I, I felt like a stranger in a strange land. So um, music was, was my way into life, into society, into everything. Okay, and uh, and how about uh, you, Wadi? What do you what do you think? What was it for well, you? Music. I I was, I thought everyone was. You know, when you're growing up, you think everybody is exactly the same. You think everyone's Jewish. Everyone likes the same kind of food. And I was always singing any melody I would hear. I was singing it. I was learning tunes. And when I was a kid, I didn't realize no one else was doing that. But I was always latching onto melodies. Um, and then at five years old, I saw um, a guy on television playing guitar and I just kind of lost my mind. And I asked my mother, what is that? What is that guy, what is that? What's he holding? What is, what's he doing? And she said, that's a guitar. And I said, okay, well, that's what I want. And she went, what are you talking about? That's what you want, you're five years old. So that's all I want, that's what I want to do. I want to do that. And um, that's where it started back then. So uh, long before, uh, Dwayne Eddy and before Elvis and everything. It was just music grabbed me and then the guitar itself grabbed me. And so by the time Elvis and Carl Perkins came out, I was already, I had a guitar, I was already taking lessons at nine years old. And so your, uh, so your mom got you that guitar you wanted when you were five? No, my, uh, well, my mom passed away when I was six, but my father fought me for three years and finally at nine got me a guitar. So uh, I started then. Yeah. So at least we, we, we learned stuff about each other in that I had a very similar thing in a way. When I was five, I was in Central Park with my mom taking a walk and some guy was playing the guitar. And it's just like with Wadi, I don't know what it was. No one played music in my family. I just was like, what is that guy doing? Wow. Wow. And I said, I have to do that. And they, they asked around and their friend said, he's too small. So I just kept asking and asking him. Finally, when I was about eight, they, they got me lessons. And I do have that first guitar still. Nice. <laughs> you kept it. And All I and can so say is, it, at least when you saw that show, you didn't see a plate spinner. You saw a guy playing guitar. <laughs> this right? would be a different band if you were sitting there. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and so, Russell, for you, like, when did you uh, hit the drums? Like, uh, when did that start for you? When did you click? You know, I have to say that, you know, I agree with Danny. I mean, what Danny's experience was, it was very similar to mine. You know, once, uh, once I started listening to that, that first wave of rock and roll, it just really got inside of me. Unfortunately for, fortunately for me, my brother was a drummer, my oldest brother, and he kind of introduced me into the instrument. And so I, I have him to blame for all of that. So... So you had a set in the house. Were your parents cool with that? Like they, uh, they're like, yeah, we're, we'll let the drums be in the household. Uh, yeah, my mom was very cool about all of that. She actually let my, our band store all of our instruments in the living room of our apartment. So couldn't, you know, we left it in the garage. There was a chance of it getting stolen. So I was very supported by my parents. 
musically. So. Right. So none for, for all of you guys, none of them, you know, no parents pushed back. They, you know, they supported you along the way. My father didn't want me to do it, but he he finally gave in. Uh, he always he always kept telling me that you know I should make it a hobby and uh, do a, have a real job. And uh, but finally he gave in. Yeah. <laughs> Same with me. Yeah. Yeah. And and so for uh, for you guys as a group, I mean, you guys all, I mean, you guys have been together for a long time. You know, Steve being the most recent addition, right? And yep. And so, uh, tell me, I mean, when you guys had, um, you know, you, you guys had a different style of music. You were more instrumental back in the '70s uh, when you started making music together, right? That's right. Yeah, those guys. Yeah. Well, the first band we had together that wasn't where we weren't uh, functioning as a backup band was the section and the section was an instrumental band. And I can see why we were playing with the greatest singers and songwriters ever. So none of us, it didn't occur to any of us to uh, pursue that direction because we felt that we were already working with the greatest of the great. And did you tour a lot as the, uh, the section? Uh, yeah, we did. Uh, we, we mainly toured as a backup band. We played with James and we played with Jackson. So we were out on the road a lot, you know, backing people up. Um, and we toured, to some degree, as as the section as well, not to the degree that we toured as sidemen. Though, mm -hmm. Danny, did you guys ever? Would you ever open those shows as the section and then play with the the man? That's, that's what he meant. That's exactly what they did. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Nice. And and so tell me about like the crowds back then. What were what was the response like for you guys? What was it like to be on stage in the in the seventies? Fabulous. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was it was so great uh, because the, the artists had a following and they identified us with the artist. Um, we became kind of synonymous when they would come to opening because uh -oh. we had been there since the beginning. Uh oh, uh oh, you're freezing. You're freezing, Lynn. No, I'm I'm warm. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 you're not. <laughs> Wait. My nipples are so hard. Jesus, hold on. Am I moving again? You are. You're heating back up again. Now, so. now, you're, now you're moving. Okay, but but since the very beginning, like with James and Jackson, they we were kind of attached to them. So when we actually became an entity unto ourselves and hit, you know, were the opening act, there was a. Uh, we were already kind of ingratiated to the audience. They knew who we were. It wasn't like having a band come out that was just a local opening act that nobody had ever heard of. It caught people off guard, um, especially the record label when they heard what we were doing, because it was not what they expected. <laughs> but, um, but it was great. I mean, and it really made for an incredibly satisfying evening of music by us doing what we did and then coming out with James or Jackson. It gave people a really kind of uh, a full plate for that evening. And, and so I want, oh, go ahead. Go ahead, go ahead. Yeah. Well, so I want, yeah, I want to ask about that, you know, kind of how you balance with the touring with, uh, with the recording, because I know you did, I mean, especially you, uh, you've done a lot of recording uh, as well. Like, so um, where is that balance? I mean, the number that I read was like, you worked on 2,600 plus albums. Is that, is that yeah. real? Yeah. How does that work? Like, if you do the math, like that's one every day for seven years, you know? Well, during the 70s and into the 80s. There was a lot of recording going on. I mean, it was amazing. And fortunately, you know, things really hadn't slowed down for a long time. So, um, 
you know, so I don't know. I don't even think about the numbers. You know, I'm just grateful that I've, I've been a working musician my whole life. That's the only thing that mattered. But in terms of balance, um, it was always a bit tricky. But um, I think if somebody put a gun to my head and told me you have to make a choice, touring or recording, um, I would pick touring immediately. I, I love being on stage. I love being on the road. It's being on the road with these guys is the greatest gift anybody could ever ask for. Um, so, you know, I love, it's like the, uh, the opportunity to either be a pit crew guy on an F1 car driver. Yep. Neil, you got a bad connection there, pal. Something's wrong with your, con your connection. Is this is so weird because I just finished a webinar with Berkeley and it worked perfectly and I haven't touched maybe, a thing. Maybe That's it's the awesome. shit you're saying. Yeah, it could be that I'm just could be that I'm just totally full of shit. Exactly. It's very possible. Very um, possible. Do me a favor. Do me a favor. Let somebody who actually has something to say talk. I'll just sit here and jerk off. <laughs> you have fun with that, okay? And so, I mean, I saw some head and nod when Lee wasn't freezing. Uh, his nips off. There, there it is. I, I saw that in one of the videos too. Yeah, can't help myself. Oh, icebreaker. Huh? Uh, so. <laughs> The touring was the, the preferred, you know, uh, yeah. for everybody. Is that a fair consensus? I would agree with Leland. I, you know, there's nothing like playing live. There's nothing like the roar of a rock and roll band and the, and the crowd getting into it. There's just nothing like that. Nothing will ever replace that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I, I will want to get into some of your individual work. I mean, that you guys have done as, as well, because you guys have just done so much when, I mean, in kind of preparing for this interview, just like, I mean, I went down rabbit holes and I was just like, oh my gosh, this is, you know, you, your guys' work is truly impressive. So I want to I want to talk about some of that, but let's talk about the immediate family. Like, how was it born? Like, you guys put together a couple of years ago as uh, the immediate family. Tell me where that idea came from. Well, so this was on you. Oh, well, uh, it started, I'm going to correct me, but we did the uh, rock and roll fantasy camp. Isn't that what happened? Oh, geez, I forgot about that. Oh, yeah, that was really the beginning, actually. That, that was really the beginning of it because uh, it was yeah. the four of us, and we rehearsed for that, which was fun. And we, you know, kind of rehearsed some songs of Waddy's, some songs of Danny's, and then we went to uh, Las Vegas and, and did this rock and roll fantasy camp. And then that kind of spawned the idea. We all, you know, we started talking about it and afterwards and, you know, seeing if we, if there was some interest there to do it. But then a couple of years, the idea went by the wayside and, and then it, it picked up again once we went to, went to the studio with Danny to record his album for Japan. And uh, Steve was brought in as well. And after we recorded that record, we all just kind of went, why aren't we doing this? You know? But then Danny, you can explain what happened from there. Well, like Russ said, I had a, a deal with a, a Japanese label and uh, so we recorded an album and uh, there's various things we could have done. I realized amazingly, Russell and Lee were in town, which is very rare at that time, and uh, agreed to come in and uh, play on, on the album, which was originally gonna be a solo album for me. And then Wad showed up later. Wad was out with Stevie Nicks and wasn't there till the last year. We three days, Wad showed up the, uh, on, on the third day. And as we did it, we just realized it all. We looked around and we said, well, this is great. You know, let's, let's do this some more. And I had um, been asked to play in Japan. Uh, so immediately I said, well, guys, let's, let's do it. Everyone agreed. I came up with the name Immediate Family. I don't even remember thinking about it, it just came out. And it was to me an obvious name because that's what we are, definitely what we are. And it all just fell together in a very natural 
uh, I hate the word organic, but in a very organic, natural way. And uh, it, it just fell together the way things do when they're supposed to. Yeah. And you've described yourself as a, a cover band that does original material, right? So you kind of mix it in a little bit, play some of the, uh, the old stuff, but you got some new stuff too. Oh yeah, we do all our stuff. We do the stuff Wad wrote with, with Warren Zevon. We do the stuff I wrote with various people. But our, our, our uh, latest album, which we finished a couple of months ago, is all original material, all by us. So I don't know, I don't know what I'm gonna say next time. We're, a, 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 we're kind of a cover band, but not really. And we, I don't know what I'll say. Cause we it's gonna be mostly, when we, we start gigging again, it'll be more, more like more our stuff that wasn't, that aren't covers, but our, our songs. Yeah, and so uh, tell me about slipping and sliding. Like, how did that come together, and how do you select? I mean, with all of the work that you guys have done, how do you uh, select what songs would be on slipping and sliding? Buddy, Bud. Well, slipping and sliding was the the natural choice for us all to follow up Cruel Twist. So uh, that's how that went. But uh, in in relation to the EP, we wanted to put. Cruel Twist, Slippin' and Slidin', and uh, we have a great version that we've done in quarantine of New York Minute that's featuring Steve singing Danny's great song. And then the other two, so we didn't want, we can't, see we have this album that we're so very, very proud of, but we don't want to put out the songs that are on that specifically yet. You know, we're trying to make a release because it's, it's all in conjunction with the documentary that's being made by Denny Tedesco. So, the original plan was everything was to come out in November. But since everything has altered dramatically now, the album and the doc are going to come out sometime next year. So our effort is to put out an EP now and maybe one more EP before we get to release the whole record. So we tried to choose some great tunes for this EP that aren't on the record, on, on the new record. Yeah, and you had we those titles. And you had a couple of albums that uh, were available in Japan, right? Honey, Don't Leave LA and, uh, and then a live album uh, as well, right? Right. So right. Is, is some of that going to be incorporated into the, uh, the new album or? Well, it uh, is, yeah. Honey, Don't Leave LA was Danny's solo album. Oh, okay. And there's, there's a song from that album, a song called Top of the Rock. And then there's a Cruel Twist. And then, there, and then that's it from that album. But we're doing a, there's a live version of Werewolves that we did recently that we're pretty fond of. And so that makes up the five with New York Minute and Slippin'. Actually, the live version is what's on the EP. It was, yeah, it, I was going to say that, that was a live version, right? So, yeah, yeah, it was yeah. cool. Uh, I, I dug that version of, uh, of Worlds. It's, uh, it's pretty cool. No, that's what I'm saying, the live version. What? What? Yeah. Cuba. what? what? <laughs> and, and so when you guys went into, to, uh, you guys recorded like 17 songs in, uh, in three days. I mean, is yeah. it just like, you guys click and it's just supernatural, you know, you're like, hey, we, we can do this, right? We know what we want. We, we could just have done started... it too, but we just started taking an extra day. Yeah. <laughs> Guess we should listen back to it, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. We might as well listen to what we did, yeah. We'd already ordered food. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. When we go in the studio, and I think this is a kind of unconscious on all of our parts, it's all business for us. I mean, we have fun. I mean, we love doing it so much, you know, the, the art of creating something that has never been made before, you know, a, a song is in somebody's head and then the lyrics get written down and the chords get, you know, decided and then, and it doesn't exist until we record it. And then now it's real. 
So I think we all love that process so much that, you know, we, we don't waste time when we go in the studio. It's, we just bang them out. Nice. Nice. And, and so, um, so let me ask you about um, some of your work outside of um, outside of the immediate family as, as well. So I just want to dig into a couple of things with each of you. Um, so uh, first off, um, um, Cooch, I want to ask you about um, your, your work with uh, James Taylor. Tell me kind of about how you, you know, how that relationship was and, uh, and the dynamic when you were uh, working with him. Well, you know, I've known James, James and I were childhood friends. We grew up together kind of, you know. We met when he was like 13 and I was 14. We immediately started playing together. Can you believe it? Right. That's and, so uh, I know, it's so weird. And uh, we, we, were, we were tight, tight buddies, you know, then and, and, and now. We're still very good friends and I love him very much. And uh, we started playing together right away. Uh, James, um, ultimately, when we both graduated high school, ultimately, he, um, I think he hitchhiked to New York and stayed with me on my couch in, in New York City. We started a band called The Flying Machine. And we played down in the village at a joint called um, the Night Owl Cafe for quite a while. We played there for almost a year. And, uh, and then James, you know, it broke up. We were going nowhere. We couldn't get any gigs. Nothing was happening. And that's when James went to England and uh, hooked up with Peter Asher. I gave him Peter's, uh, I was friends with Peter, so I gave him his number and address. James went to see him. And uh, uh, the rest is history, I guess, you know, pretty much. But yeah, we played together a lot, you know, before he made it and after he made it. Because after he made it, Russ and Lee and I toured with James for many, many years. You know. Yeah. And so t uh, tell me about the dynamic with, with James. I mean, just uh, outside of making music, I mean, being childhood friends, I mean, tell me about uh, that friendship. It goes beyond music, right? Well, it does, yeah. I mean, he and I had a lot in common. For instance, uh, we both had mothers that took us to Broadway to see all the Broadway shows, you know. By the way, does, that does not make me gay, even though, well, I, you know, <laughs> yeah, he's gone, well, maybe. All right. There's your we mom. Both, your mom's there, right? So. You know, we, we both had kind of, you know, kind of intellect, semi-intellectual uh, families. So that we got a lot of, both of us got a lot of culture, and it's the same kind of culture. So we had a lot of that in common as well. Besides, we both love the blues. We both love folk music, before it was a dirty word. We both, uh, uh, you know, we both loved rock and roll. And, uh, you know, we just fell together. He and I had a lot in common, let's put it like that. And, uh, you know, we never had, you know, we never struggled to have anything to talk. We both also had the same sense of humor. So uh, we laughed about the same stuff. And it, it's just like that, a very easy, natural relationship that, that uh, he and I have always had. And that's kind of the way it is, which is also what I have with the rest of the fellas in this band now. So there you go. Makes things a lot easier, for sure. That's right. Yeah. And so, uh, Wadi, uh, tell me about working with the Stones. What, like, what was that like for you? Well, it was pretty unbelievable, actually. Um, you know, Keith called me and said, we're in town, come to the studio. And, and it was a couple of days before Woody showed up. So next thing I know, I'm visiting, and then it's going, oh, let's go play. I went, what? Let's go play. And Jim Keltner and I were, were the outside uh, ingredients. And we wound up being there for, I don't know how long it went on, three months or something, every night, uh, working with the Stones, just set up in this circle and just playing song after song after song. It was phenomenal. And when Woody showed up, Woody was giving me a like, hey, what are you trying to take my place and stuff like that? I went, no, man, not a bad idea, but no. And uh, <laughs> we just found ways to the three of us to play together. And uh, it was, 
it was incredible, really. Jim Keltner and I would pass each other in the hallway and just stop and look at each other and going, we're still here. Do you believe we're still here? We're, I can't believe this is going on every day. You know, we had one day off and I was home in bed. It was about 1130 midnight on a Sunday night. All of a sudden the phone rings and it's Don was going, hey, what? What are you doing? What, what am I doing? What are you? Why are you calling me? He goes, uh, Keith's got this tune, man, he wants to do. I went, when? He goes, now. <laughs> now? Hey, you're not busy. Okay, uh, I'll see you in 20. Uh, fortunately, I lived down the hill from uh, Oceanway Studio, so I could, when we'd leave there in the morning, we'd, we'd start every night at about seven and work till anywhere from four or five in the morning until seven in the morning. And I was able to just roll back down the hill to my house. So, so I climbed up the hill on uh, Sunday night and stayed there till the next night. But it was phenomenal. It was truly a uh, one of a kind experience. They were great. They were great to me. They were really uh, sweet to me. And, uh, and I made it out alive. <laughs> you did, you did. It's a, it's a great story. And so, uh, Russ, tell me about working with Dylan. Oh, God. Uh, very, very, very similar uh, experience that Wadi just uh, recounted. Um, I'll start by saying this. If Bob Dylan walks into a room, everything changes. The pictures on the wall tilt. Everybody's attitude in the room changes. He has an incredible charisma. And I truly believe he's not trying to do it at all. I mean, I think that's one of his, uh, one of the things that really bugs him is that, you know, that he has that effect on people. And I was constantly pinching myself because the first time I worked with him, it was with him and George Harrison in a studio in New York. Uh, I was called, I was there working on a project with Peter Asher uh, on an album project and we had finished and I was back at the hotel. It was kind of just like what, what he said. And Peter said, I want you to put your drums in a cab and, come back down to CBS. And I said, why do we have another tune to cut? And he goes, no, George Harrison and Bob Dylan are in the studio and they need a drummer. So I remember, I remember sitting, once I got my drum set, it was sat up, I rolled a joint, smoked a joint, put the headphones on. And on one side, I got Bob Dylan. On the other side, I got George Harrison. I went, okay, I can die now. This is it. I don't, can't do, I don't, I don't have to do anything else. And then I got called back after those sessions to uh, play on Bob's new morning album. Uh, I guess he, I, I didn't get fired, so I must've done something right. He called so, you back. Yeah. So when you're in a situation like that, dude, like, do you push the nerves aside? Like, I mean, because you said you have to pinch yourself, right? Like, this is, is this real life? And, but like, how do you approach that? I mean, that's a, being in, in a small room like that, I imagine he's even more intimidating with those too than uh, than being on a big stage in front of twenty thousand people. No, he he wasn't. He's not intimidating. He just you change. He's not really doing anything to make you change. Um, um, I didn't have I didn't have time to have any nerves. The way that Bob records is he just plays things once. I mean, on those sessions he did. Yeah. And, and I have no idea what time signature is going to be in or, or how long the intro is. You just kind of jump in and hang on. So I was more concerned with you know making sure that I ended at the same time that everybody else did. And I didn't have time to be worried or, or nervous. Yeah. What an experience though, huh? It was incredible. Yeah. Really incredible. Yeah. And so uh, Steve, I'm going to ask you about David Crosby, but I'll start by saying that I, I think 
David was probably the first celebrity I ever met. Uh, I was a tiny kid and I met him in the San Francisco airport and got a picture with him. Uh, and uh, I, you know, I didn't really know who he was back then, but it's this cool thing that I have now. It's, uh, it's like, okay, you know, that, that's a pretty cool moment, you know, that my mom had the camera ready. She knew David Crosby and, uh, and was able to say, hey, you know, are you David Crosby? <laughs> so, so tell me about working with, uh, with Crosby. Uh, we have a, you know, I, I work with his, his son, James Raymond, who's his producer and keyboard player a lot. And, and we just have a nice, we just wrote a song for his new record and, and I played it and, and, uh, he always seems to forget that we've, he goes, I didn't know you could play the guitar like that. And so that's what you said last time I played the guitar with you. <laughs> but, uh, uh, he's, you know, he's a really, uh, beautiful musician who who sees it his own way like the, his harmonic sense comes out of out of tuning his guitar all these different ways he's like hey check this out if i tune this to that and this to that i get these chords and and consequently nobody writes like him um some of the stuff because of it can be challenging to actually play to recreate you know in a in a standard tuning and um but we've had a lot of fun. We've done, we, the, all of us, We I guess uh, Russ was out of town. We just did a benefit with him last year. We got to play, uh, well, we play Ohio and uh, Long Time Gone. Long Time Gone. <laughs> a lot of fun. But, you know, he's a character, but he's still, the thing I like about all, all these guys we're talking about, I just was playing with a couple of them last weekend, different guys that they still, including us, really love it. They love, you know, every, the, the process, the, that's what separates out the men from the boys. Like, there's people who just kind of still doing it because of whatever, or it makes some money. Crosby's like a little kid. He's still like, check this out. Look at this guitar. Look at this tuning, you know, and so it's always fresh. It always has that spark to it. And, and he plays with you sometimes in Night Train Music Club, is that right? He did. We went to Canada with that. Yeah, we, we brought a... We brought a uh, the Nitro Music Club, which is something that most guys in here, are, well, until Russ used to do it, Danny's done it. It's just sort of sort of an all-star band, a lot of different people, and we had a great version of it with Vonda Shepard and Bernard Fowler, and Leland. Leland was there, and Steve Holly from Wings on Drums, and uh, who else was there? Uh, Albert Lee was there. So it was it was a cool group of people james raymond and crosby and that was a really really fun night yeah yeah that is uh that's pretty cool and uh and so uh leland tell me about um your work with phil collins like how was it uh the dynamic between you and phil um he's a schmuck i don't i can't stand him you know i just i just mailed my parts in you know i was out of there <laughs> that's the way to do it you know i gotta well, you know when, when tiny tim was available i knew i i, knew I had a priority uh, no, Phil, yeah, I met, I, I met Phil doing a Lee Rittenauer record. I mean, I knew Phil from Genesis, and he knew me from the stuff that I had done, but Lee uh, Rittenauer called both of us to work on a song on, on his album around 1980, I guess it was. And then Phil uh, called me after that and asked if I could do his album and his next tour, um, Face Value. And I was already working with James at that point. I was committed. So I couldn't do it, but I said, you know, I'd love to work with you at some point. And, uh, and he, uh, he called me in 84, 
to go over to England and do the No Jacket Required album. And then we spent 85 on the road. But it was a unique experience because we only had theaters booked for the tour. It was, a, you know, he, nobody really knew who Phil was. They knew he was the drummer from Genesis and stuff. But as soon as Susudio came out, and, and all of a sudden we had to put the skids on and went from theaters to arenas like overnight and everything changed and suddenly he was like the darling of of the music business at that point and uh you know i love phil his work ethic is 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 astounding uh, he uh and i think the, the coolest thing in his attitude for me was that like when we would rehearse for a tour we'd rehearse for a month we would you know get the the rhythm section together first then bring in the singers if we if we had singers with us in horn section and then go into full production rehearsal because his attitude was that the first audience deserves as good a show as the last audience and so many bands go out and spend like the first couple of weeks of a tour dialing the tour in these people have spent their hard-earned money to see that show and they deserve so when we would rehearse we'd rehearse like at bray film studios in london and um like the last week of rehearsals, we would invite people to come down and, and, and watch the show and then sit and talk to them afterwards and see what parts worked, what parts maybe there wasn't, you know, if there was any lulls. And we had Barry Manilow and his band come down one night and watch the show. And so I love that work ethic. And that's one of the things I love about doing this project is everybody brings that kind of ethic to this. I mean, we want to put on the best show that we possibly can. And it's nice to be prepared and go out there and, and, and have it together rather than, you know, sort of going, well, you know, we'll get it together. We've got a couple of weeks of touring. Let's, you know, work it out out there. Yeah. And um, so, Russ, I want to ask you uh, about, um, sorry, sorry, I was going to ask you about, well, talk, talk to me about Spinal Tap. That's what I was going for. Sorry. <laughs> and, uh, and kind of how all of that came about. Um, Chris Guest uh, was a friend of my first wife, Leah, and uh, when he came out to L.A., um, he hung out at our house a lot. I played softball with him. I was on a, a little softball team that we played, so he's like a baseball fanatic. And uh, we just got along really well, and, um, you know, he started, you know, doing these musical things with with Harry and, uh, and uh, who's the other person? Michael name? McKean. Michael McKean. And they, they just got into this, um, this character thing of, of playing, these, playing these character roles while they were jamming and playing music because they all love to play music. And as the story goes, Rob Reiner, who was a friend of theirs, came by one of their jams one time and, and saw them doing all this and said, why don't we do a movie of it? You know, and that's how the, the whole idea started and the rest was kind of history. It was one of those aha moments for me, for sure. Danny was also in Spinal Tap. We both got to be in it in, in very small scenes, but um, it, was, it was great. It was great to be a part of that. I mean, you know, you never know when you're doing something like you're part of some, something that goes on to become an iconic piece of art, you know, and you never know it when you're doing it. You're just happy to be doing it and having fun. But it, that was a nice thing to be a part of, it really was. And, and Danny, would you say kind of the same thing? I mean, in regards to like Cheech and Chong's Up in Smoke, like you didn't know what that was going to be when, you know, when you're in it? Uh, hmm. Well, I think Lou showed Waddy and I some footage. I can't remember why. 
but really, uh, he called me in and, um, you know, he, they wanted music for this stuff. Wadi and I got together and came up with a couple of themes, you know, just threw some stuff together. We really didn't know what to expect. Yeah. So we went into the studio. I can't remember who's on drums, probably Murata. I, I can't remember that. I don't um, know. And uh, uh, we just started throwing this stuff down. We, you know, just, just some of it was jams, but most of it was stuff that themes that we'd worked out before we went down there. So yeah. we had an idea of what we were going to do. And then we just went in a hit, you know. And we saw some footage of, of, of the film. And, you know, obviously right. it looked real great. But I have to say about Spinal Tap, they called me up. Uh, I had the right hair at the time uh, for uh, the character I played, Ronnie Pudding. And um, I went down there to their office where they were, you know, they said, well, take a look at it. Take a look. we got 20 minutes of the film. Take a look and tell us what you think. So I went down there with my pal Bob Glaub. And we watched 20 minutes of it. I laughed so hard that my my ribs hurt for two weeks, for not for two <laughs> days. I laughed so hard I could buy my 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 ribs were killing me, you know. And I said, I'll do anything you guys want to be part of this. It's hilarious. <laughs> Those guys are all fucking brilliant, brilliant, brilliant people. Yes, they are. Yeah, that's awesome. And and Wadi, you've I mean you've played music for a lot of different movies. Now a lot of them are, are comedies too. Like tell me about that kind of how that uh, pans out and kind of where, where, you know, how you approach those projects. Well, that was a whole different world for me. It was uh, Adam Sandler, uh, who I did, uh, I did a few records with Adam and then uh, we did a little tour and on that tour, he said, I want you to score a film for me. And so uh, we came back to town and I did a little bit of work on uh, his film, The Waterboy, but my first, complete score was that movie Joe Dirt, David Spade's uh, fabulous role. And uh, they just said, write the score. I had no idea what I was doing. Uh, I realized I needed to buy uh, a computer-based composition kit. So I bought Digital Performer. I had a guy come over and show me how to hook it up. He <laughs> taught me how to plug in the guitar and left me there alone. And I went, what do I do? And I just started, uh, looking at scenes and you, they, what, you know, on a film, a lot of times they'll give you what's called a temp score. So there's, for each scene, they have the kind of music they want to hear in that scene. So you have an idea of what to do. So that's what I did. I would just hear the temp and I'd try to write something like it. Or if there was no temp, I'd write my own thing. And um, that's how it went down. That's how it works. And the next thing I knew, um, they hooked me up with an orchestrator. The orchestrator showed up and said, well, you know, you're writing this really big, you know. I went, I, I don't know what I'm doing. You know, what do you mean I'm writing it? He goes, well, you're writing for like 90 pieces here. I went, really? Wow, <laughs> is that good? He goes, well, it's good if, you know, if they'll let us, uh, if they'll supply the orchestra for it. You know, a lot of movies will go, you can't write, you know, have a score that big, but they gave us a green light. So we had a 90 piece session for my score. My first score it was full of every, every musician except these guys in town, you know, all the, all the movie guys, the older guys, it was phenomenal. And uh, so I did that. Then a lot of times, some of the movies you'll do, you'll write the same amount of work, but some of the movies don't have those kind of budgets. So the score will actually be your MIDI sounds, your orchestra samples and stuff. So I've done it that way too. Um, and I've just been very fortunate to have done the, the several that I've done. Mall Cop was a really big one that I did. And uh, it's just, it, I, I love doing it. It's, it's a lot of pressure and it's a lot of, you really have to get ready for the, uh, 
the idea that you walk in with something and something you've been working on for a week or a week and a half and, and you play it for some a director and they go, no, what else you got? Instantly they go, no, that's not it. What do you want? What else you got? And I go, what else do I have? I don't, I don't have anything else. I mean, but you can't say that. You go, well, I've got this other piece I'm working on, you know, but they don't, you know, they know what they want to hear and what they want to see. And uh, so it's challenging. You really have to get used to the word no. Quickly. You can't be too attached to your, to your work, huh? <laughs> well, you can't. No, you can't. You've got to be really flexible and because you're dealing with, you're dealing with director, then you're dealing with music supervisor, you're dealing with producers, you're dealing, then the star of the movie comes in and goes, I don't like that at all. You know, okay, start again, you know, and sometimes, you know, you'll, you'll stray from the temp and I'll get a call and Adam would say, stick to the temp, just play, just do something just like that temp, you know, don't go too far away from it. So you get a lot of direction, but, and it happens quickly too. And by the time a music, by the time a composer gets a score, they want it, you know, that's because they're pretty much done shooting and they're putting together their final cuts and they want that score. So it's a pressure situation, but it's, it's awesome. And, and Wally, and sometimes when they've, when they've turned down one of your ideas or one of your pieces of music and they say, go away and come back with something else, you go away and you come back and you play them the same thing and they go, it's perfect. <laughs> well, I, I didn't do that, but I did say after they refused a few other ones, I went, why don't you listen to the first one again? All right, man, that's it. And they went, you know, you're right. That's the one. Okay. Yeah. So I did do it that way. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, that happens too. Yeah. yeah. And then there was electric, you know, guitar score stuff. That was a little easier for me to get over with them. But the orchestra stuff is uh, challenging and I, I love it. Yeah. And working with Adam, like, I mean, he, he, <clears throat> He's a musician as well, right? So, I mean, he kind of has that ear and can uh, talk to you and kind of tell you very what he want, wants there, very right? Good. Yeah, very good ear and knows exactly what he wants. Was he as funny off, you know, like uh, off screen as he, uh, as he is on screen? Pretty funny. <laughs> yeah? <laughs> he can be, yeah, he's, uh, you know, that's his uh, life. Uh, he's very, very funny. Yep, oh. he's a doll. I love him to death. He's one of the sweetest guys in the world, and uh, he's a pisser. He'll, he'll keep you laughing all day. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. So I want to ask you guys about um, about your experiences playing shows in the Bay Area. Uh, I'm, I'm in Napa, California, and um, nice. and so yeah. I mean, I've, I'm actually I live on a vineyard, so. <laughs> um, nice. are, you, are you okay with the fire? Oh, I was evacuated from my house for five days. Um, and I mean, but that's not the first time. I mean, at least this time we had um, warning, you know, like the, we, the night before we knew that fires were nearby. We could pack like three years ago, uh, I was evacuated and I had no warning. I didn't save anything important, birth certificates, kids, you know, uh, social security, any, anything like that. I just saved a couple of priceless items, you know, just like two things and the pets, you know, and got out and then got my house and burned down. You know, um, you know, because the house is right on the other side of where I live. We're, we're gone, totally gone. And everything I heard is this area was not good. So um, it's... Glad you're safe. Well, thank you. Thank you for that. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, we're good now, but this is, I guess, what we have. <laughs> it's just another piece of 2020 right now, you know? So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The locusts are on the way. Yes. I, I mean, that's about all we got left. Anything else uh, we, uh, 2020 can throw at us before the year's over? I guess, I guess I couldn't, I should hold my breath because yeah, really. <laughs> we'll see anything. Right. Right. Uh, but, but tell me about like playing shows here in the, in the seventies. I mean, I've talked to artists about, I mean, 
my favorite venue is the film one. Um, I mean, there's so much history there. And I mean, you can get lost looking at the, post, the, the posters on the walls and everything, but like, tell me, I mean, any, any of you guys that have memorable experiences um, playing around here? Oh, got, yeah, lots of them. We, we used yeah. to come up with James and play the Berkeley Community Theater. We'd play the Greek Theater up there. We'd play Concord Pavilion. Um, in the late 60s, I was in a band, and, and the first gig we ever played as a band was opening for Zeppelin at Winterland. Wow. You know, I played the Fillmore up there. I mean, I, the Bay Area is so iconic in terms of especially that 60s into the 70s. Um, but that was always a stop with James was we, we'd hit the Bay Area. And, and Bill Graham always put on like the, the greatest shows. The backstage at the Greek was always That's great. Bad. <laughs> themes back there would be like a Hawaiian village one time or something and you know it was it was a joy to come up there plus it's one of the most beautiful areas in the world is you know that whole Bay Area part of California so just to come up and hang and then have time to wander the streets and, and uh, enjoy it so I, I love coming up there it was always a great stomping grounds yeah Anybody, anyone else have anything to? Well, I've been up there a lot with Stevie, Stevie yeah. Erickson, who lived up there for a while. So uh, we've played a lot of beautiful shows up there. But I wanted to mention um, one time when I was with Linda, working at the Greek with Bill Graham, and uh, and he was the best. He was incredible. But I just remember this it was the first time I was on the road with her, really. And we were at the Greek, and and Bill came backstage and said to Peter, listen, you know, like you just said about this Hawaiian theme, Lee, you know, he said, uh, listen, Peter, we want to put on this, you know, like a nice, beautiful meal for everybody, you know, and so if you guys, you know, we want to chip in some, you know, a couple hundred bucks and stuff. And Peter goes, my guys will eat hot dogs. <laughs> Forget it. I'm not spending a dime. <laughs> but it was wonderful. And we played a lot of big shows up there with uh, the Eagles and Jackson and Linda was, was the, the three headliners and the, uh, Jackson and Linda would alternate their slot. Eagles were the open, were the main event always, but Jackson would go open first and then Linda would open first. And it was, it was incredible. The crowds were fantastic and the area is amazing. Yeah, mm -hmm. we love them there. Yeah. I, I mean, you mentioned, I mean, you guys mentioned the Greek and like, some of the greatest shows I've seen have been there. I saw Petty play there a couple of times and uh, like Great 05, theater. 06. And yeah, in 06, like Stevie came out for like five songs. She was touring with him and uh, and it was just so amazing. Like what an amazing show. I mean, and I mean, we, let's just talk about Stevie for a minute because I, I, my, I we got it. So tell me about um, your work with Stevie and like, I mean, you guys have been, I mean, you work together a lot, right? Yeah, we've we've been together for uh, since. Well, I played on their first album when Lindsay and Stevie's first record, Buckingham Nick's record. I'm I'm there with them on that. That's where we met, and then we split up for about ten years. And she called me and and she called Russell and and Bob Glob and put us on her first solo album, and I've been her MD since that record. Really, we took we took a couple of years off from each other, but. Uh, for the most part, we've been doing our act together for since 1982, I think it was. Mm -hmm. And she's an incredible gift to the world. She's a real, 
as I told her after our first show, and she, it was funny because she, you know, we had a, a, we had a good relationship, you know, when I met her and she's a good singer and we never really got down together, you know, and we, we, we did her solo album, which was incredible. When we came up, when we did Edge of 17 and the other songs that are on that first album, it was mind blowing to, you know, and to see how strong a performer she was, but that was still in the studio, you know, and, uh, so we did our first show and after it, we were all up in her room. Russell, you were there. We were all sitting around having a drink and saying, wow, we got through it. It was great. And everybody left and, uh, and it was just her and I sitting there. And I, I said, well, I got to tell you something, Stevie. Uh, you really impressed me tonight. She goes, oh yeah, sure, right. Yeah, sure, you like what I do. Yeah, I, I know you don't like what I do, why? And I went, <laughs> I said, well, I, I didn't really, but, but uh, now seeing you on stage and standing next to you on stage, I said, I got to tell you something, girl. You are a rock and roller. And I don't use that term loosely at all. And there are very few people that earn that fucking title but you are a complete rock and roller and I love you for it. And uh, so we've been rocking and rolling since then. And she's fantastic. Oh, that is so awesome. Oh man. Uh, I mean, there's, I could talk to you guys for hours. I mean, and I, as, like I said earlier, like as I was preparing for this, I was like, Oh my gosh, I'm going to have all of you in the same room. And I could easily talk to each of you for, you know, for an extended period of time and just dig deep. And, but, I won't. I won't uh, hold you up, but <laughs> but I want to. I want to really thank you. You know, for taking the time to to chat. I mean, the uh, the new EP is really awesome, and I look forward to when the you know when you guys can put out the uh, the full length and uh, and checking that out. Thank um, you so much. Thanks. And the fact, really, the fact that you guys are you know together and making music and doing what you love and and as a family, you know, after all these years, you know, I mean, the tightest of friends. I mean, is is really truly incre incredible and uh i mean that's something i think probably more valuable than all of the artists that you've worked with and ev everything like i mean just to have you know kinships that are that close so um so keep it up is i guess what i <laughs> we will thank that's you really sweet, really sweet of you to say yeah thanks very much man we appreciate that thanks a lot for having us and we were lucky to find our fifth brother i'll say right now to, to right all the yeah. right that whippersnapper, as Steve would say, as, as Lee would say. Everybody has band has to have one guy they can really pick on and say, "Hey, <laughs> get in line, kid." Do, do they try and hold keep you in check, Steve? Like, are you? Uh... Oh, I, I am on my I, I am on my tiptoes all the time. With <laughs> beautiful guys. There's a certain amount of hazing involved in being in this group. Right. Yeah. yeah. I get, I have to go get coffee sometimes. You know. How long does that last? <laughs> It'll never end. <laughs> Depends how good the coffee is. <laughs> awesome. Well, well, thank you guys again. If you want to give my number to anybody that you guys know, you feel free. You know, I'm. I, I'm <laughs> but no, no, I love, I love talking to you guys and hearing the stories because it's just this is what I live for. I mean, it's just uh, having these great conversations and hearing, you know, about all these experiences that you guys have, have had, which are so amazing. So really. When, when when the album comes out, let's do this again. Really? Let's do it. Absolutely. Yeah, we can't wait for you to hear it. We're so I'm, proud of it. I'm totally down, and uh, I'll, I'll have at least another hour's worth of questions <laughs> to talk to you guys about. So great. we'll, we'll make great. it happen for sure. So, okay. um, yeah, you guys have a great rest of your day then. And, uh, yeah, we'll be chatting again soon, okay?
All right. Well, thank, thank you. you. Thanks very much, man. Thank you. Take care, Steve. Bye-bye. See you, girls. <laughs> Hi, little boys. Little boys, girls. That was the interview with the immediate family. Thank you so, so much to those guys for being on the podcast in, in case I don't thank them at, uh, at the end of this next segment. But uh, Jens, that takes us to our final segment of the program. What is it? It is time to talk about some music news. That is right. We each have a couple of stories for you uh, and about what's going on in uh, the music world today. And um, and first off, Jens, um, I have a story that kind of involves a band that's uh, released some new music uh, for the first time in 19 years. And uh, First time in 19 years. Yes. And that band, Jens. Wow. Okay. Yeah, that, that band is Semisonic. Oh, look at that. Yeah. Do you remember Semisonic? I remember Semisonic. Okay. Excellent. Uh, well, um, their lead singer, Dan Wilson, um, talks about how Liam Gallagher inspired them to reunite. Uh, and oh, look at that. Indirectly. Uh, and and to release new music. So the Minneapolis uh, band formed in 1995 and released three albums before they split in 2001. Uh, and they re- reunited 16 years later to play a series of shows to mark the 20th anniversary of their debut album, Great Divide. So uh, Wilson has also written songs for a host of big stars, including Adele, The Chicks, formerly known as the Dixie Chicks, uh, and, J- and James Bay. So he's done a lot of uh, uh, work himself. You know, he hasn't, you know, been off the grid completely or anything, but um, he explained to Music Week. Uh, that uh, working on songs for Liam Gallagher planted the seed of Semisonic getting back together. He said, I had this great meeting with Liam. I've always been a huge admirer of his and his band. We had this really interesting meeting. We talked about music. We talked about the possibility of me writing some songs and to see what it would be like for him to sing a song that I wrote. I was pretty inspired by the talk, and so I gave it a shot. Um, And then when he submitted the tracks, uh, Gallagher's manager wrote back saying the album was already done. Oh, God, how about that, right? Uh, he said, "Wow." Yeah, he said that was that was fine. But then one of the songs in particular, which Semisonic didn't end up using, but he kept thinking, "This doesn't sound like Liam Gallagher at all. This sounds like Semisonic." Uh, and uh, he said, I, "I think it was like a kickstart or kind of cheat sheet." It probably put me back in a mindset I was in in 1998, like, oh, that's the flavor. That's what the band was like. That's what it felt like to play rock uh, with a with a band. Um, and that writing these songs gave him confidence. Uh, he said, I got that spark of like, oh yeah, this sounds like the band that I remember. That's so exciting. Part of that was nice for me because I just didn't want to update our, our sound. Uh, I didn't want to do some sort of grafting. I just wanted to sound like a trio playing music. Um, and so they released their new EP, You're Not Alone, uh, uh, this week, their first new material in 19 years. Um, and... Um, on another note, Oasis is set to celebrate the 25th anniversary of their album, What's the Story, Morning Glory, next month. But Gallagher recently said he hasn't been invited to take part in any related events. So on goes the Oasis saga. 
uh, so- oh, so- saga about. Uh, I don't think that's ever going to end. <laughs> I know. Uh, 25 years, and uh, yeah, they will uh, pretty unlikely be getting back together. So. Yeah. Oh, well. Yeah. Uh, okay. So uh, let's see. I got a story. What you got? You remember this whole fire festival thing? How could I forget? Yeah, it's a, it's a mess. <laughs> it was a yeah, mess. Yeah, right. Um, and that was that was a place that I think both of both you and I have been to before, wasn't that in the Bahamas? And uh, it, yeah, it was. It was. But I think it was the Bahamas, right? And, yeah, I think it was. Uh, um. <laughs> that place that both you and I no, were at once. Nassau? Not together, yeah. But, um, yeah. Yeah. Let's see. Anyway, so this is about the lawsuit, of course. So uh, let me tell you about the Fire Festival lawsuit um, that's been settled with Blink-182 and Mayor Laser. So uh, it comes after a trustee filed 14. Dude, a trustee filed 14 lawsuits um, about this. So... Uh, this is a lawsuit between Fire Festival organi- uh, organizers, Blink-182, and um, the mayor, and again, that's been settled. So, the, oh my god, okay, so the yeah. trustee overseeing the $26 million bankruptcy of jailed organizer Billy McFarland's Fire Media has collected 360000 of the 2.8 million. Okay, so that's a start. <laughs> that's a start, right, right. So paid to, uh, yeah, uh, so many was paid to artists uh, that were set to play at the disastrous uh, festival, which was back in uh, 2017. Yeah. That seems like it's a while ago. Yeah, right? it, yeah it's been a couple wow. of years, but man, it uh, just keeps going, huh? Yeah, it sure does. Um, so let's see, these 14 lawsuits were filed this past December, um, and a bit to reclaim the money of the 14.4 million. Jesus. Oh my God. So creative artist agency received 585,000 from fire festival, 500,000 of which was paid to blink 182 and have returned 135,000 total. Wow. Okay. Well, it'll probably be a developing story. Yeah, it's uh, it doesn't sound like it's over yet, huh? Yeah, uh, things like that probably uh, you know will continue. Yeah, I have a story. Ends legal stuff. Dicks River. Yes, hit at me. So um, people should be wearing masks now, right? Uh, yeah, one would hope so. And they should <laughs> avoid partying. And uh, Billie Eilish agrees. Uh, she's calling people out for partying during the pandemic. She sa- uh, said, I haven't hugged my best friends in six months. Y'all are out here partying. Um, and she's calling out her peers for partying during the pandemic uh, as the disease continues its hold a- across the g- globe. Uh, she shared a video on her Instagram story using a distorted filter. She said, funny how I haven't hugged my fr- uh, best friends in six months and y'all are out here partying. Then um, she ditched the filter, returned to her normal face with a straight impression. She continued funny. Her criticism comes after famous faces, including YouTuber Jake Paul, faced criticism for holding parties. Um, uh, Paul came under fire after footage of a party held at his mansions in uh, Calabasas, California, circulated on social media in July. Uh, and 
Um, and so earlier this month also, Eilish's brother, uh, Phineas, confirmed that her new album will not be released until she can safely tour. Uh, so... Um, she wants to, I mean, bands are releasing music at this point because they, I mean, they'd made the music and they can continue to make the music, but they're, you know, you gotta have the tour to support it. Right. Uh, um, I mean, Mm -hmm. to, to be able to make, get it out there, play the songs, get the, you know, people knowing about it and interested in it and, uh, and kind of gain that excitement. And, uh, but, uh, uh, but she's holding hers off until, uh, until she can, she can tour apparently. You're right. Well, there you go, Billy. Yeah. It's nice to stand up for stuff and make it known. You got to stand up for stuff, Jens. You do. You can't just sit back and, you know, whatever, everything. Yeah. You got one more story for us? You know, this whole hands in the air and I don't care. That's no good. No. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, I do. Um, you know that I'm a fan of uh, Mr. Bob Dylan. I do know this, and we mentioned it earlier in the pod, yes. Yeah, yes, exactly. Let's talk about him. So, uh, uh, it's, well, we can hear Bob Dylan welcome fans to first theme time radio hour. That's, quote, theme time radio hour, unquote, show in 11 years. Oh, Okay. That's cool. He used to have this show. Yeah, he used to have this show. I never really listened to it all that much, um, but it's it was it was a great show. Um, basically, quote: Does anybody still have a radio? <laughs> you got to find one <laughs> to folks, listen to it. Yeah, what's, what's that? Uh, some folks might even be listening to you know be, be listening on a smart toaster. Unquote. Okay. Singer jokes in return. Hilarious. To, Serious XM, ha 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 ha. You know, a smart toaster actually sounds pretty cool. I mean, people still have Sirius, <laughs> like, <I> mean, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like Sirius hasn't gone anywhere. And um, yeah, so anyway, I guess he's doing his radio show again. Uh, so this uh, article goes like this: Bob Dylan welcomes fans to the first episode of his theme radio hour. Uh, in 11 years in one of the three exclusive clips from the show ahead of Dylan's Sirius XM return on Monday oh my god that's just around the corner um, so he says hello friends and welcome back to theme time radio hour I am your host Bob Dylan to paraphrase Alexandra Dumas in The Count of Monte Cristo I am so delighted to see you again. It makes me forget, for the moment, that all happiness is fleeting. Oh, yeah. Well, that's well said. Okay, yeah, that's what he did. Uh, Dylan said. You know what? Um, I could read that again in Dylan's voice, but I'm not going <laughs> I do want to hear but, your Dylan, uh, but... Uh... Yeah, I could, but I won't subject anyone to that. And um, But as I was saying that, I was doing it in my head, in his voice. I mean, it sounded like a Count Dracula uh, <laughs> voice that you were doing. <laughs> All right, so uh, the rough and rowdy way singer admits early on uh, what brought him back to uh, the satellite radio airwaves after almost a decade, um, which is his whiskey collaboration, Heaven's Door. Hmm. Okay. Because he wrote, he wrote, he wrote, he wrote, "Knocking on Heaven's Door," right? Yes, and, and Guns N' Roses yeah. covered it, and I mean, and theirs is the, theirs is the more famous one, obviously, at this point. But uh, 
Uh, yeah, I know he did. He wrote a lot of songs that became big. I think because other people—they're right. <laughs> um, like, yeah, what, what we, just, the words are good. We just can't understand them. So let's get a yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, this song has so much potential, but can we get another band to actually make it? You know. Yeah. Yeah. Popular. Yeah. Audible. Exactly. Audible is a better word. Yeah. Yeah. So he's got. Yeah. So. So anyway, this um this is great. Anyone who's interested should uh, certainly you know take a listen. Um, you know, Dylan fans uh, typically give this uh, give the show or have given the show in the past rave reviews. Nice. Well, hopefully it uh, it does well for him and he inspires people to listen to the radio. <laughs> <laughs> right. XM Radio. I got one more story for you, Jens. And uh, do you know who it involves? Uh, I'm just going to take a guess. It's may or may not involve Mr. Dave Grohl. Did, did you forget his name again? Was that was that this more of the installing? No, 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 I just was trying to make a joke between, oh. you know, uh, I don't know what I was trying to do. <laughs> okay. I, I partially did forget his name. Okay, it there it is. That wasn't the dominant part. <laughs> I was trying to. I was trying. I wanted to get a segue. That's what it was. That's that was what I'm looking for. I wanted to do a segue between you know what I had just talked about with Mr. Bob Dylan and somehow you know a five minute Dave Roll, but it just became a confusing mess in my head. A five minute um is a is a great it. segue. Okay. <laughs> uh, so yeah, so it does have to do with Dave Grohl. Uh, and uh, do, you, do you remember the throne that he used back in oh, around 2017 when uh, he he broke his leg? I do remember this. Yes, and uh, uh, and that so iconic. and so after he had used it, do you remember who you uh, who was the, who he handed it off to to use? I believe throne. Dave handed the throne off to a fellow uh, colleague who had also had an injury. Mm-hmm, yep. um, Axel Rose. That is right. Well. Marilyn Manson says he refused to use Dave Grohl's throne after a 2017 stage accident. He he says I found this <laughs> I found this electric wheelchair that rose up, um, and so he had a stage accident in 2017, which which, oh my God. which saw him hit by a falling stage prop. <laughs> oh no! How does that happen? I don't know, Marilyn Manson. Uh, I wonder what it was. Uh, it was at the Hammerstein Ballroom in New York, and it resulted in the sh- uh, shock rocker being hospitalized and forced to cancel several dates. It happened to him after a pair of giant pistols fell on top of him. Oh, my God. <laughs> Hopefully they were made out of air and styrofoam or something. Yes, and that, <laughs> that put him in the hospital, huh? <laughs> oh, that would be even better. They were like styrofoam, but they were really big. <laughs> And so shortly after the accident, Manson said he had 10 screws put into his fibula and another screw in his ankle bone. Uh, he said, the, the prop started to fall and I tried to push back and I didn't get out of the way in time. I'm not sure w- what I hit my head on, but it did fall onto my leg and break the fibula in two places. The pain was excruciating. Uh, and so now he spoke about the accident further and how he refused help from Dave Grohl and Axel Rose. 
uh, you know, and oh, it was 2015. Wow, uh, it, uh, that he used it, and then he later offered it to Rose um, for 2016. So he's had 10 titanium pins in his leg. He said, right here, 10, just goes from here to here, and they're still there. They're going to be there forever, but I had to do a year and a half of rehab while on tour. Uh, he did a tour with it. Uh, wow, wow. And, yeah, and he said... You know what? I um, I just want to say that, uh, okay, you know, maybe he found a, a more practical solution or something with his kick-ass wheelchair or whatever, but this throne obviously <laughs> needs the gift that, needs to be the gift that keeps on giving yeah, or something. Yeah, come on, you know, it, dude. It's got to be the thing where every time somebody has a leg injury uh, who's awesome, right, gets to pass it on to the next person that has that. And then it goes on and on and on for like, hundreds of years that way. Yeah. And I feel like Marilyn, like, fucked it up. I mean, he had the option to continue this, right? And, uh, oh God. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it, it's, uh, and he, and he, opted against it it's just like come on dude you, you have that option but he did he did give him credit he said dave Grohl and axel rose graciously offered their chairs and i said no and i found this electric wheelchair that rose up and i tried to make it into a part of the show and it was not a fun time at all but it doesn't bother me now it, it's actually more of a bionic leg and it doesn't go off at airports either which is strange um if anyone's heavy metal it's in, in my leg uh, it's my leg uh, it's full uh, heavy metal um, he also said he avoided using painkillers following following the accident. So there's, wow, there's uh, wow. that as well. But um, but he, I mean, he made it into part of the show. And like I'm looking at this, I mean, it looks like just a, a wheelchair. Uh, but he fires a fake rifle at San uh, San Bernardino concert audience. Uh, is the story I'm reading from 2017. He state, states a faux uh, mass shooting hours after an actual gunman opened f- uh, first inside a church in Texas. Okay. Well, speedy recovery. I you know, wish the guy all the best. That's definitely not a fun situation to be in. No, no, I should say not. So, um, all right. Well, that's our show for today, Enns. Um, and. All right, man. I just had a kind of a deja vu all of a sudden. Like I, I feel like we had just recorded this a moment ago. <laughs> Wait, like, did it, we just do this? <laughs> it seems so familiar, doesn't it? Uh, <laughs> it does. It's like wow. You know, life, anyway, life will do that. <laughs> yeah. Well, I will. I will tell you. We we're not slowing down. We have some exciting interviews coming up. Um, uh, next week on the podcast, we have Okie Doki, uh, which. Uh, is not just a you know fun name for a band, but uh, uh, a good band out of Nashville, and uh, I had a great chat with them. And then uh, this is one I'm looking forward to as well. We're gonna have Sean Harris, the lead singer of uh, the Matches. Uh, you know who they're not around anymore, uh, but they had a uh, there was a documentary that was excuse me just put out um, about them, and and it, you know and so I I mean. The Matches are a band that I really enjoyed uh, from the Bay Area, and that you know they never fully took off in the way that they should have. So I look forward to talking to him about uh, you know about that, and uh, you know, and then right. and then an artist named Riley Moore down the line. So we have we have lots of good stuff coming up, and uh, that's what we do here on Concert Pipeline, bring the uh, fun chats. So for all of us here at Concert Pipeline, that's Jen Shippel. And 
Pat and Steve Jones. We'll catch you next time.